Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We would like to warn all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that the following program contains the names of deceased persons. The authorities knew right from the outset that the trials, in a sense, were rigged because the key expert witness that they used, they knew for certain because they had publicly stated years before that he wasn't qualified to do autopsies and he wasn't actually qualified as an expert, which means he can't give evidence in court as an expert witness. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We recently began telling the story of Henry Keogh, the Australian man who served over 20 years in prison in South Australia for the murder of his fiancée, Anna Jane. It's a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. Now, it's while looking into this story that I would become aware of a terrifying case of South Australia's former chief forensic pathologist, a man who would conduct thousands of autopsies and give evidence in hundreds of court cases, resulting in over 400 convictions. All of this while he simply had no qualifications in which to do so. So when I first started chatting with Henry about his story, he gave me the names of some individuals who had worked tirelessly behind the scenes for years, helping him to clear his name and be released from prison. One of those people was Dr. Robert Moles. Now, you would have heard Dr. Moles in the first episode of Henry's story, where he began telling us about Dr. Colin Manock, a man who would be South Australia's chief forensic pathologist for decades, all while he was never qualified to do the job. Dr. Moles and I spoke for over three hours. So what we're going to do is break this chat up. Much like our normal Tuesday episodes, we will run the story of Henry Keogh and Dr. Manock simultaneously. And today is part one of the Dr. Manock story. (laughs) 
So Dr. Colin Manock um, was, um, he did his medical training at Leeds University in England, and he finished his training around about 1962. Then he did a couple of years as a house officer. He had five different jobs at that level, um, all six-month posts. None of those were in forensic pathology. After that, he got a job as a, an assistant lecturer in forensic pathology, and then he was promoted to a full-time lecturer in forensic pathology. So he had four years lecturing and teaching in forensic pathology, and he said that during the time he was there, he did a fair number of autopsies. Now, it's very interesting because if you look at his CV that's um, on, on my website, you'll see that when he applied for jobs, he attached a statement recounting his previous experience, of course. And in the first one, he said, whilst I was in Leeds, I did 800 autopsies. In the next one, I did 1,200 autopsies. And in the next one, he said, whilst I was in Leeds, I think it was 1,400 or 1,600. Dr. Moles went on to tell me a little tidbit of information that, quite honestly, sent a shiver down my spine. The interesting thing, I think, is that whilst he was at Leeds University Medical School as a lecturer, he had a student there who overlapped with him for about two years. The student's name was Harold Shipman. Um, Have you come across? Absolutely. I'd I'd say there'd be very few people who wouldn't know the name uh, Harold Shipman, that's for sure. Police in Thameside in Greater Manchester are investigating the deaths of 20 people who are all patients of the same GP. The GP involved in the inquiry is Dr. Harold Shipman. I'll come and stand where you'd like me to stand. I've been advised to stand and let you take a photograph and then go away. And I'm sure you've had enough time to take a decent photograph. Is it possible for you just to say anything at all? Back into surgery to do my surgery. You have said you have nothing to hide. The Greater Manchester GP, Dr. Harold Shipman, has been charged with another seven murders. Dr. Shipman is already accused of killing eight patients and he'll face one of the largest murder trials in British history. The first witness who's been giving evidence in the trial of Dr. Harold Shipman, the family GP accused of killing 15 elderly women patients. Guilty of murdering 15 of his patients, Harold Shipman is sentenced to life. So Harry was a student at Leeds University Medical School and if you look at the books on Harry, what he said was, Whilst at university, I was particularly interested in forensic pathology and would hang around the mortuary long after the other students had gone. So you've only got to say, well, okay, if he's hanging around the mortuary long after the other students have gone, he can't be just there on his own. That wouldn't be allowed. So who could he be with? Well, the only person he could be with was Colin Manock, the lecturer in forensic pathology at that same time. Now, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, because I think it's just interesting that one of those two people went off to be the world's worst serial killer. The report on him said that he had killed at least 230 of his patients, but then added, we think the real total is nearer 430. So he went off to be the world's worst medical practitioner and serial killer, and the other one went off and became the world's worst pseudo-forensic pathologist and secured um, over 400 wrongful convictions. So Dr. Manock arrives in Australia 
after answering the call in the British Medical Journal that South Australia was in search of a chief forensic pathologist. And even though he's never in fact worked as a forensic pathologist, it is said that Dr Manock was apparently the best candidate for the job out of all who would apply. What's even more insane is that he gets the job with the understanding that once he has the job, he will then study to become a qualified forensic pathologist. So it's kind of like my local GP, who's never been a trauma surgeon, getting the job as the head of trauma surgery, under the understanding that once they've got the job, they'll study to get the necessary qualifications to be a surgeon. Nonetheless, he gets the position, which obviously means he now has to do the job that he's supposed to be studying for. So this man, who has absolutely no qualifications to be a forensic pathologist, then begins to attend trials, including high-profile murder cases. The first rather suspicious activity is the fact that in 1971, just three years later, he's coming up to the trial of Fritz van Bielen. Um, that was a major case in South Australia. Fritz van Bielen was said to have attacked, raped and murdered a young girl down on the beach. Obviously a horrendous crime. Dr Manick is heading to be one of the prime witnesses at the trial. And at that time, he's then handed a document which states that he's a fellow of the College of Pathology of Australasia. Now to get your fellowship as the College of Pathology of Australasia, you have to do at least five years of study you have to do two demanding rounds of examinations. And at each round of examination, approximately 40% of the candidates will fail. So it's, it's, it's not an easy gig. Yeah. So what the College of Pathology spokesperson said, was, he was asked, this was in the ABC Four Corners program, he was asked by Sally Neighbour, why did you hand Dr. Manick a certificate saying he was a fellow of the College of Pathology in 1971? And Dr. Whedon said, Ah, well, that's because if you arrive from England with qualifications, then we give you the Australian qualification to match it. And Sally Neighbour said, of course, but he hasn't got any English qualifications, so why did he get this? And Dr Wheaton said, ah, we would have given it to him because of the seniority of the position that he held. In other words, because he's been appointed to a job for which he's not qualified. That's insane. It's difficult to make him look as though he was qualified. Um which really makes no sense from any point of view that I can think of. Crazy. Just because of the job he had, men said, oh, well, he's in that job, so let's just give him the qualification. Like That absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. No sense at all. And for those of you who might think this can't quite possibly be true, here is that exact moment from the ABC Four Corners program. Well, it was the practice in those days for members who held very senior positions in Australia and who had British qualifications to be given a viva examination, that is, an oral examination only. But Dr Manick didn't even have British qualifications. So I believe. So why would he have been given this oral-only examination? Oh, because of the seniority of the position he held. Now, the difficulty is that when you go to court as a so-called expert witness... The test for going to court is not, do you have a piece of paper on hand stating that you're this or that or something else? The test is, have you, by study or training, acquired specialised knowledge on the issue that's to be addressed? 
Normally, you see, a certificate saying you're a fellow of the College of Pathology would indicate that you'd have done the five years of training, yeah. two arduous rounds of examinations and so on. So what we face now is that in 1971, he's given a certificate um, stating he's a fellow, and after that, he's turning up in court and to the Van Bielen trial, one of the biggest and most important trials of the day, state, simply stating he's a fellow of the College of Pathology, giving evidence, and he gives evidence which it subsequently proves is invalid. He gave a time of death based on his observation of stomach contents and said he could determine down to the minute when this person had died. The young girl had eaten a pie, a pasty and a carton milk right about midday. And it was actually important with Van Bielen that the Crown could establish that she was in fact dead by 4.30 and no later um, because Van Bielen was known to have left the beach, left that area at 4.30 to go and pick his wife up in town. So if the death could have occurred later than 4.30, um, then the prosecution case could not be successful concerning Van Bielen. Um, and so Dr. Mannix said, I examined the girl's stomach contents. They had been taken at autopsy, stored in the refrigerator, frozen for three months. And then he realized that the time of death was important. So he took them out, thawed them out, had a look at it, and just said, that looks like four and a half hours to me, meaning... If she had taken her lunch at 12 o'clock, we don't know if she, in fact, had anything to eat after that, of course. But he says if she took her lunch at 12 o'clock, then she must have died at 4.30 and no later. She was quizzed on that by defence counsel who said, but can you be confident she was dead by 4.30? And he said, yes. He said, not even five minutes, ten minutes later? No, no, he said, not five or ten minutes later, 4.30, no later than that. And that seemed to be important evidence, you see, at the time of the trial. But it's complete nonsense. I mean, estimating time of death on the basis of stomach contents. One of the people who worked with him at the time, Derek Pander, went on to be one of the UK's leading forensic pathologists. He wrote an article a couple of years after the Van Bielen case because he was so disturbed about that. And he said the article is entitled The Stomach is a Poor Forensic Clock. And in the article he said, if you're trying to estimate the time of death on the basis of stomach contents, you'd have to put in a figure plus or minus about three hours. That's how accurate you could be. It's very inaccurate, you know. Yeah. But anyway, so he's giving this evidence. And what we learn from that is that because he's not troubled by the scientific <coughs> knowledge, because he doesn't have that, it becomes very convenient for the police and for those who wish to secure their prosecutions and convictions. Because he's malleable, he's happy to please. Mr Fritz van Bielen would be found guilty and served 17 years in prison for the crime, a crime he has always maintained he's innocent of. And, in fact, over 45 years later, would still be fighting to clear his name in the courts. The next major occasion that we have is in 1975, when it appears that the Forensic Science Centre had become quite disturbed about Dr Manoch's lack of progress with his studies, and so they advertise for a senior director of forensic pathology and at that time, Manok takes them by surprise. And so what he does is to commence civil proceedings against his employer and also the state of South Australia. Now, that's really important because it now means the state of South Australia, although it's responsible for the Forensic Science Centre, is specifically named as a party to the action that Dr Manok is bringing. They can't deny any knowledge that they have that's disclosed during those proceedings, you see. So during the course of the civil proceedings, where Dr Manox says, if you appoint somebody who's a senior director of forensic pathology, 
that would be an appointment above me and that you can't do that because I've been appointed to be head of department and then that would mean that I've been demoted and that would amount to a constructive dismissal of me from my post as head of department. The litigation went on for six years so it was a serious matter. It wow. wasn't just, I'm a bit annoyed. This is litigation for six years. During the course of that, in, in about 1975, Dr. Bonin, is then the head of the Forensic Science Centre, states in his sworn evidence, and I've got copies of the transcript of this on my Dr. Manock webpage, in which he says, the problem we have with Dr. Manock is that he's not qualified to certify cause of death. And then he adds a few paragraphs later, and the other problem we have with him is that he has no expert qualifications, which means he cannot give expert evidence in court. So this is publicly called out by his own employer and an expert doctor in charge of his workplace that he is unqualified for the job and he cannot give expert evidence in court. Yet he has been for years and is allowed to continue to do so. He's been there for seven years already. He's been giving evidence in cases like Van Bielen major criminal cases and all sorts of sexual assaults. Because as the, as the head of the forensic pathology, he took all the, the big cases for himself. He enjoyed being in the news. In fact, there were a number of newspaper articles around about that time that said, you know, he's our sort of you know, troubleshooting sleuth. He's our sort of forensic detective and so on. And he enjoyed all of that. Um, so here he is. Um, his employer has now given sworn evidence in court on those two matters. He cannot certify cause of death. He cannot give evidence in court as an expert witness. So what they have to explain is why it is that after that, he continued to do autopsies and certify cause of death in over 10,000 cases. He undertook 10,000 autopsies. Wow. And he helped to secure, coming back to the point you raised earlier, helped to secure over 400 criminal convictions. And if you ask why we use that figure, it's because he was interviewed by Channel 9 and Carl Stefanovic during the course of the interview, and this was in relation to the Keogh case, said to him, Dr. Manock, he said, uh, how many criminal cases have you given evidence in? And Dr. Manock's being a bit coy and saying, well, I don't know, I don't keep count. And he said, well, come on, give us a figure. What, what are we dealing with? And then he answered, 400, 400 plus. All, all of those, of course, would have to be determined to be wrongful convictions in my view. And here is that moment with Carl Stefanovic on 60 Minutes, which I actually would implore you to go and watch as Carl does an incredible job of putting the screws to Manock. Uh, you can see it on the 60 Minutes YouTube page, which I will link in the description of this episode. How many convictions did you get? I have no idea. I don't keep count. How many cases? 400, 400 plus. Is it a worry, do you think, um, for you and also the legal establishment, that if they did review this case and Henry Keogh was released from prison, that they would look at all of your cases? I really don't know. I'm too old to worry like that. <laughs> Dr Manick was not qualified to certify cause of death. He'd never done the proper training. And he was never qualified to give evidence in court as an expert witness. He hadn't done the study or training to acquire the specialised knowledge. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll see just how ludicrous Dr Manick's evidence is. And even more worrying is how it goes completely unchallenged. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I would, as a reminder, like to warn our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, the following program contains the names of deceased persons. In one case of Gerald Warren, Gerald is a young Aboriginal boy who's found dead on a dirt track just outside Port Augusta. And Dr. Manick is called to the scene. He looks at the situation, he does his autopsy work afterwards, and then issues a report in which he says, I think this young lad fell from a moving vehicle whilst intoxicated, and that's how he died. He said, I noticed that he had a, an injury to the back of one of his hands and the side of his face, which would appear to people to be defensive type of injuries. But they had strange little parallel marks within them. And he said, I think that those marks to those injuries were caused by the fabric of corduroy. I think that as he fell from the vehicle, his face and the back of his hand came in contact with his trousers, corduroy trousers he was wearing, and that's what caused those marks on his body. Shortly after that, a woman who lived in the area was, said she was very disturbed. She went to the local police station and she reported some family member or a friend of a family member who would get drunk and then they'd talk about what they did to the Abbo kid. And she was troubled by that. She thought the police should maybe follow up and see if there's any, anything to it. Well, they did that. Um, and then the two of them confessed, Stephen Newdag and Alan Ellis, they explained what had happened. They were driving into Port Augusta, and as they drove past this small group of Aboriginal lads, one of them was drinking a bottle of beer and decided to throw his empty bottle into the back of their ute. Just a bit of a laugh. They took exception to that, went to the local bottle shop and got a six-pack of beers, came back up the road, and then waggled the beers out of the window and said, come on, join us for a beer. And he said, no, fair enough, yes, I don't mind that. Hopped in with them and they drove out to where this dirt track was. They then got out of the vehicle, walked around to the back of the vehicle, drinking their beers, and one of them reached into the back of the ute and lifted up a small scaffolding pole that was there and began to beat him about the head and face with the scaffolding pole until he was unconscious and fell on the ground. 
And then he yelled out to his mate, get out the way, he says, I'll run him over. And he then reversed the ute over the boy's body, back wheels and front wheels. He came forwards again with the ute over the body and the body then snagged on the exhaust. So he pumped the accelerator, shot forward, spun the vehicle round and the body went off into the bushes and they went off to enjoy the rest of their day. So an absolutely abhorrent act and crime against this young man. And as I'm sure any normal person would imagine, injuries like this would undoubtedly be severe and cause severe visual injuries to a person. So how does Dr Manock now explain the vastly different autopsy reports? Of course, one of them stating these injuries are caused by the corduroy fabric. The other, that this was a savage beating. Well, it's honestly quite astonishing. And at the trial, we now have two different autopsy reports. One about how the injuries were caused by the fabric of corduroy and so on, and the other one with the savage beating. So the interaction with Dr Manick goes a bit like this. Well, Dr Manick, I, I understand that initially you said that these injuries had caused, been caused by falling from a moving vehicle. And those marks that you saw there, I believe you said that they were caused by the fabric of corduroy. Yes, he said, that's right. But now I understand you to say that those marks were in fact caused by impact um, with the threaded end of a metal pipe. He said, yes, that's correct. And he's asked, well, isn't that a bit of a problem? And Dr. Maddox says, no, it's not a problem at all. He says, well, did you explain that to us? And he said, yes, it's quite simple. If you um, have the fabric of corduroy impressed against the skin on the one hand, or it's struck by the threaded end of the metal pipe on the other hand, the physical forces involved are very similar and the injuries would be indistinguishable at autopsy. Now, it's nonsense, isn't it? It's absolutely yeah. terrifying that someone like that could be in a position that he was. And, and then it goes on. Well, Dr Manick, you say initially that he fell from a moving vehicle, yes, but now I understand you to say that the vehicle was driven backwards and forwards over his body. So he's only a 15-year-old, slightly built Aboriginal boy. Well, could you explain that? And you can see how the explanation's going to go, don't you? <laughs> if you fall from the vehicle on the one very hand, similar. or the vehicle's driven backwards and forwards over the top of you on the other hand, the physical force is very similar and the injuries would be indistinguishable at autopsy. So no other term for it other than utter rubbish and absurdity coming from an apparent forensic pathologist, the chief forensic pathologist. However, what's even more absurd is that in a room full of supposed learned people Barristers, lawyers, even a judge, not one single person would question what was being said by Dr Manock. Nothing at all. No, the difficulty we have is that Dr Manock is saying things in these cases that truly make absolutely no sense at all, and ordinary people on the street would know that. So why don't people in court appreciate this? Because these are very serious trials. And that's all we have time for. But coming up in part two, we'll hear how a report into more incorrect findings by Dr. Manock is held back from being released due to his imminent court appearance in the case of Henry Keogh. So what you see is the coronial report is dated prior to Mr. Keogh's trial. It was released two days after Mr. Keogh was found guilty of murder. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.